The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Right, very good morning to Scorebox. Absolutely massive day here in Europe. Uh, and we've got the Brady Bunch for you. What have we got? We've got Jumana Basecchi in Rome on your left. Then you've got Karen, of course, uh, commandeering all the markets. You've got Annette on the right-hand side at the ECB. My goodness, mate, what, day, what a pivotal day it is for European policymaking and politics. Uh, these are your headlines. The ECB set for a historic hike, raising rates for the first time in 11 years. Amid speculation, the central bank could follow global peers, wait for it, and potentially opt for a bigger 50 basis point increase. And over in Italy, Prime Minister Mario Draghi is expected to resign today after a call for parliamentary unity backfired, likely throwing the country into another crisis and potentially early elections. Gas flows reportedly resumed through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline after the end of scheduled maintenance, with the head of Germany's energy regulator confirming operations at a reduced 30% capacity. And Tesla shares push higher in extended trade as the automaker tops on second quarter earnings forecasts. Inflation weighs on margins, but CEO Elon Musk says price pressures could ease this year. I think inflation decline towards the end of this year. Uh, we're certainly seeing uh, prices of commodities trending lower, uh, you know, but take with a grain of salt. It's days like today when there are so many components and quite frankly anyone who says they know how today is going to pan out because of the flows in the equity market over the last couple of days which have been by and large very positive or they know where it's going to go because the earnings season is telling us a path they're lying and that's a fact because there are so many factors including the three massive factors here in Europe at the moment. We've got them all covered, by the way, today. There's the Nord Stream resumption story, absolutely enormous for Europe as well. You've got the Draghi will, he won't, he story, and the ongoing Italian political crisis. And, of course, I think pivotal to the destiny of European equities and European bonds, bonds, is about the ECB. Now, the ECB, European Central Bank, is expected to hike rates for the first time in 11 years today. The highly anticipated move comes as the euro area looks to tamp down surging inflation, which hit 9.6% in June. Let's just remember, 9.6% with a negative 0.5 interest rate. Sounds strange, doesn't it? Investors will also be looking out for more details around the ECB's anti-fragmentation tool. Now, some people are saying, I heard Dan saying in the previous show, the excellent capital connection. Well, some people are saying it's just another bomb buying tool. That's exactly what it is. It is nothing more sophisticated. It is about the ECB not allowing the market to set yields. Surely. Someone tell me I'm wrong. Anyway, the anti-fragmentation tool, which it says will allow it to tighten policy without overly squeezing the euro area's most indebted members. There's a lot to be said, and Karen and I said most of it. And uh, the elongated 20 minutes she got us on air yesterday for uh, the start of Street Signs when Draghi was speaking. It was a year ago, 
five days' time, sorry, 10 years ago, in five days, that Draghi said, we'll do whatever it takes. But he was buying cover for indebted European countries. And what have they done in the intervening 10 years? I think you know the answer to that. So the euro area has endured a volatile couple of months ever since uh, President Christine Lagarde pre-announced the ECB's intentions to hike rates in July via a blog post. I'm in the right position, right? Then uh, Lagarde doubled down on her intention to raise rates in the summer at the ECB's subsequent meeting and implied further hikes could follow in the autumn. However, just days later, she called an emergency meeting. Oh, no, sorry. Remember this one? You'll like this one. It was called an ad hoc meeting. It was an emergency meeting. Honestly, it really was. She called an emergency meeting amid a surge across many European sovereign bond yields. Do you remember what the Italian got up to? Karen Cho does. It was over 4.3% at one stage. Uh, The central bank then went on to announce it would unveil a new anti-fragmentation tool. I wonder what they're going to call it. Is they going to call it the AFT or something else? But details so far remain scarce. Now, back-to-back uh, weeks of downward pressure eventually saw the euro hit parity. Great chart, this, by the way. I don't often shout out to our graphics team enough, but it's a, it's a very good uh, illustration. I seem to be pacing myself just about rightly on this one as well. So, saw so the euro hit parity with the dollar on July the 12th before recovering and eventually surging. Yeah, surging. Is that right? It's up 2% actually. Uh, on reports, a 50 basis point hike could be on the table at today's meeting. So Lagarde sought to downplay expectations of the immediate impact of higher rates at last month's meeting. Let's listen in. Do we expect that our July uh, interest rate hikes will have an immediate effect on inflation? The answer to that is no. And I would like to develop that a little bit. First of all, because of the anticipation of our monetary policy, because of the inflation and growth outlook, financing costs have already moderately but significantly increased, whether you look at corporate bonds, whether you look at sovereign bonds, whether you look at um, bank, of course. Uh, those, those financing costs have increased. And with the signal that we're giving here, particularly concerning the short-term rates, this signal will continue to have an impact on financing costs. Let's get to Aneta. Aneta, this is one of the trickiest ECB meetings yet, I think, up there with the trickiest of Draghi and perhaps Trichet uh, before him as well. I I don't know how she's going to steer the right path for everybody going forward or at least not compound other mistakes that have been made. I mean, what's the key here? Are we more excited about 50 basis points potentially, potentially, or are we more excited about the details of the new AFT? There could actually be a link between both because, of course, the doves want to have that anti-fragmentation tool, however they are going to call it. By the way, it's called Italy crisis tool here in Germany, which is quite interesting as well. Um, and the, But there's a link. So the doves want that uh, and the hawks want to have 50 basis points. So that could be clearly a political horse trading situation that um, they get perhaps a firmer, perhaps 
a bit more detailed already anti-fragmentation tool as of today and, uh, and the contrary or in response to that the, the Hawks might get their 50 basis points but to be fair I don't think there's a high likelihood for that 50 basis point hike because clearly in the past the ECB has always been following their forward guidance and they risk a lot of credibility if they were to move now from that 25 basis point to the 50 basis points because clearly it will not not make a major difference to inflation, to be fair. Um, as of now, it will make a difference, of course, to the markets. Um, I think there's a lot of room for disappointment today for the markets from the ECB and from Christine Lagarde, especially when it comes to the euro exchange rate, because we have seen what happened when that 50 basis points was floated. The euro surged directly. Also, yields were surging directly. Um, so I guess that it will be a very, very tricky key meeting today um, and as well the rhetoric coming out of the ECB. Um, but as I was saying, it's a 50 to 50 chance uh, right now and the markets are also pricing it in accordingly that we get 50 basis points. Clearly there are um, countries especially in the north like the Baltics who uh, do witness inflation rates as high as 20% Eastern Europe partially as well um, and the smaller ones do advocate for harsher moves into higher rates because they clearly have been witnessing as well what means high inflation uh, uh, in the past, uh, yeah, in, in, the, in the recent past, I have to say, um, when those countries came out of communist regimes, they also had a surge in inflation. And the population there had extremely interesting conversations down at Sintra about the fact that the population is willing to take on the, yeah, the pain from higher interest rates because they know inflation is so painful in the longer, medium term for them. So I guess the, it will be a very interesting discussion which we of course can't follow inside the governing council but what I've been hearing is that also the likes of Villeroy de Gallo uh, the Bank of the France governor for example, they do advocate 25 basis points and not 50. So I think this will, we will see a clear rift. As to that anti-fragmentation tool, remains to be seen how much detail we are getting as of today and it's, it's, it's a legal challenge to actually design such a tool which then uh, will not instantly face uh, a challenge from the uh, German Constitutional Court, because we have seen what has happened to other bond-buying programs in the past. One alternative that was also discussed behind the scenes in Sintra is just to do the anti-fragmentation tool and run the risk that the Bundesbank cannot participate, but the others can participate, because clearly it's a Euro system where every, each, and, each and every uh, national central bank, um, well, is actually buying bonds on the markets and if the Bundesbank is not allowed to do well the others can do it so I think that could be one way to tackle the problem but of course that would not mean unity and that is not a good a message to the markets but I think it's a very challenging task to come up with a new bond buying scheme which will target individual countries because that's what it will do and that's the, the, the aim of an anti-fragmentation tool. Annetta, we very much appreciate the detail. Thank you very much for setting the scene. All complex uh, now as we talk about the political situation too, playing out in Italy where the Prime Minister Mario Draghi is expected to announce his resignation to Parliament later this morning after members of his National Unity Coalition abstained from a vote of confidence in the government. 
Draghi's resignation could trigger fresh elections in the autumn and would come just hours ahead of the ECB's key meeting later today. A quick look at the Italian yield curve, uh, the 10-year we're focusing on 3.32% is where we're perched this morning. Uh, we mentioned uh, that's about uh, 100 basis points off the highs we've seen uh, over the course of this year. But uh, what we've had, I think, uh, a number of factors here. The, the look at it, reading on US Treasuries, the impact on what could happen from the ECB and the impact on a bund on this side of the world and of course the political layer here as well so a couple of different factors for the Italian yield to the euro we are perched off the lows we were around parity in recent weeks and you can see we've climbed up to the 102 and a quarter level but let's get out to Germana for more in Rome Germana Steve and I were just having a debate offset as to whether this could be the last technocratic government we see for a while in Italy Yeah, I mean, that's going to be a question that President Mattarella has to answer. Uh, and uh, if you rewind back just 24 hours, Karen, the mood here was a lot more positive. Remember, we were just going into Prime Minister Draghi's speech. Um, he gave a speech to the Senate uh, and uh, sort of reiterated that he needed the support of all of the political parties in order for his government to continue. After that, there was almost like a sense of relief. And then in the afternoon, the mood turned very abruptly, uh, particularly with comments out of Lega, this time uh, led by Matteo Salvini, criticizing the government for not putting forward more plans to help everyday Italians. And some people read that as less of a critique of the government and more uh, as a beginning of uh, some campaigning into potential snap elections. So uh, a little later on in the afternoon, it emerged that three senior parties uh, in the national unity government, Five Star, Lega and Forza Italia, would abstain from the confidence vote. Now, the vote still passed with a simple majority, but with the absence of those three political parties. And, of course, uh, there are qu big questions as to whether or not Prime Minister Draghi can actually continue. He is expected today to go and visit President Mattarella yet again and submit his resignation because, he, for him, he will not be able to see a path forward unless all of these political parties are supporting him. So then the question is what President Mattarella decides to do. There's a lot of pressure from the political parties to just get on with an election and call the snap election potentially as soon as the end of September or at the beginning of October. The way that would happen is President Mattarella would have to dissolve Parliament. They would then have 70 days to set the election date. But one other alternative is the President could say, look, now is not the time to go into snap elections. It's summertime here in Italy. Uh, we have the uh, budget law to get through in autumn. And historically, there's never been an Italian election in autumn period. So maybe President Mattarella could look for yet another caretaker prime minister to uh, usher in uh, the budget, budget law and prepare the country for snap elections as soon as next year. But the reaction from many of these political party leaders is certainly indicating that they're ready for elections now. And uh, for example, uh, Giorgia Maloney, the leader of the Brothers of Italy party who was not participating in the national unity government, uh, said yesterday, we are ready. We're ready. Let's just go to the polls. Uh, you had reaction from Salvini yesterday who tweeted after the vote, Draghi and Italy have been victims for days of the madness of five-star movement and the power games of the PD. This, this, this commentary definitely sounds like they're gearing up for elections. And remember, Matteo Salvini has been a part of this national unity government, but he's also eyeing a, a potential role in the next government, given how high the right and center-right parties are polling. He's very good on the ground. He's a very good campaigner. He's watching how much Giorgia Maloney from Brothers of Italy has risen in the polls and is thinking, well, I need a couple of months to get back on the ground again. 
to usher up some support. So lots of moving parts here, but as Aneta was just highlighting, it's also a really crucial time for Italy from a, a, an economic standpoint. And I thought it was interesting that Aneta was saying the anti-fragmentation anti tool going to be announced by the ECB today is being called the Italian crisis tool. Uh, and that's exactly it. Here we are in yet another situation of political turmoil at a time when uh, there are a lot of economic demands out of Italy, uh, particularly when it pertains to those EU recovery funds. They've received about 46 billion euros out of a 200 billion euro total size. There's a lot more to do, and that's contingent on them actually keeping to their side of the equation. So uh, a lot of moving parts still. Oh, well, let's not just say it's about Italy crisis. We could make it Greece, which has a huge debt to GDP, which is even larger uh, than the Italians. Or it could be the Portuguese at around about 127, or the Spanish at 118, or dare I mention it, the French who've got 113 debt to GDP. So let's not just pick on the Italians, eh? Thank you very much indeed for that, Jumana. Uh, Max Castelli, head of Global Sovereign Market Strategy and advice at UBS, joins us now. Max, uh, look, uh, your title says uh, you have advice for people. What is your advice for investors in this current extraordinary time? Well, first of all, thank you very much for uh, the kind invitation. It's uh, Thank you that you say don't pick up on the Italian, but for sure Italy is a very high risk uh, country because of uh, three characteristics. One is, of course, the high debt. But let me also add the low uh, growth potential, which has been historical, the future of this economy. And last but not least, is very much exposed to energy price more than over European countries, together with Germany, for instance. I don't know if I could give an advice. I don't give a guy's on, on politics. I'm, I'm also an Italian, and I was actually pretty surprised by the fact that this government did not survive this phase. I, the, really, I thought the probability of election was very low, but now it seems to me that this probability has risen pretty dramatically given the developments yesterday. So my advice for Italy would be for sure uh, to maintain fiscal discipline. This is most very, very important as we move into this uh, higher interest rate environment because, of course, that's a little bit the weak point that could come out uh, in the next few months as the political situation evolves. So for sure, a fiscal... Uh, stability is of paramount importance now. And of course, Draghi was uh, the man for uh, providing the guarantee to, the, to Europe and to other member countries. Max, indeed, you sum it up, but, but that stability is falling away as we uh, watch the politics. And I was just remarking to Steve off camera, I mean, we've got a, a government here, a technocratic government that's meant to be supported by all parties, particularly in a time of emergency. And one would argue we do have an emergency situation playing out with this cost of living crisis, uh, the geopolitics, the macroeconomic backdrop in Italy, and just as the ECB readies an anti-fragmentation tool. So it does uh, put into context the, the political story here. But when it comes to Christine Lagarde, do you think we could be setting up for a big event risk day today on markets because it felt like many market participants were waiting, sitting on the sidelines for this anti-fragmentation tool? Yeah, I think there, that's where I see potential uh, disappointment because we all know that there is definitely a big political debate going on within the ECB with regards to this anti-fragmentation tool. And the question will be what exactly will come out uh, fr from this institution. I, I remember we actually discussed this uh, very length at our conference a few weeks ago, where uh, we had uh, quite a lot of uh, central banks official participating. 
And the conclusion was that uh, ultimately it is very likely <clears throat> that the market will be disappointed in the sense that it will not have that potential to arrest any type of speculation on the Italian bonds. So I think that's something that uh, we have to see in the next few days, but it's definitely going to be uh, an area of uh, big uncertainty for Italian bonds. And I think we're going to see volatility there for a few weeks, at least until uh, the next election hold, which is going to be a pun, as you said, in the debate just a few minutes ago, about uh, probably two months away. Max, the accusation towards the ECB is now it's becoming politicised uh, and then getting involved on that fiscal discipline you just mentioned. What is the appetite? And, and I've always wondered this as well, ever since Mr Draghi 10 years ago made his famous statement. What is the appetite for Italy to have a newfound fiscal discipline if indeed their bonds are trading at a, um, an artificial level compared with what the market believes they should be trading at? I think the appetite is very low. As you know, Italy is going through uh, a very difficult moment from an economic point of view, particularly the impact of energy prices is felt both across the household and the corporate sector. And if you look at what Draghi did over the last few months, he was he used his magic, if you want, in the sense that he was able to mobilize quite a substantial amount of resources to support the households and the corporates in this difficult moment without uh, actually uh, using uh, more uh, deficit. So everything was done maintaining fiscal discipline. Now the drag is gone, all that becomes much more complicated and we have to see how this develops. But I, I can see a lot of problems down there as we approach election. Max, I want to ask you about uh, the BOJ and the implications today because we saw it uh, standing pat effectively and pushing back against the tide. We've been showing uh, some fantastic uh, data, some walls about all the central bank moves in recent uh, weeks, uh, the 50-odd basis points, sort of synchronised move we're seeing by a lot of central banks. Did the BOJ buy the ECB some cover today by pushing back against that hawkish narrative and pointing out about the growth concerns considering Europe still has this energy crisis and uncertainty around gas supply. Well, it's very interesting that the ECB and the Bank of Japan are the two central banks from the two economies, which uh, historically have been uh, performing uh, worse than uh, over advanced economies. I'm talking about, of course, in terms of growth. So I'm not surprised that they are very cautious in, uh, in raising rates, but I believe it will be very difficult for these two central banks uh, to maintain a pace which is uh, very much uh, lower than what, for instance, we are seeing in the US. I think in the end the ECB will have uh, as well to, uh, of course, uh, to raise rates. We always believe that this is going to be not at the same pace as the US, but ultimately we also see the ECB and eventually the Bank of Japan will follow in terms of closing the gap uh, little by little with the over economies, with the over advanced economies. As you pointed out, the in uh, the rising rates that we have been seeing over the last few months has been uh, to a certain extent uh, pretty uh, staggering in the sense that central banks have clearly communicated that they're not prepared to let inflation uh, get away and uh, i think uh, we have a similar situation in uh, in europe and uh, we will see more action going forward from the ecb although of course the pace will be more muted than uh, in the case for instance of the us Max, thank you very much for joining us today on what is set to be a very big day for markets. And Max Castelli joining us, Head of Global Sovereign Market Strategy and Advice at UBS.
And just a quick note, our colleagues uh, Juliana, Jamana and Annette will be bringing you all the latest news and analysis from that ECB decision this afternoon. Coverage starts at 1400 CET with the decision scheduled for quarter past. We'll then bring you President Christine Lagarde's press conference at 1445 CET. And you may recall that is an altered schedule from uh, what typically used yes. to play out. Do you see where Max was joining us from? Somewhere beautiful. Tuscany. Yes. Is there anywhere better on the planet than Tuscany? It's Just chucking that one it's out. It's right up there, isn't it? It is. I, if you had to ask a string of viewers out there if you'd like to be located in Tuscany today, I'm sure most of them would say yes. Right up for that. Just perfect place. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, Nord Stream, back to more mundane matters, <laughs> more worrying matters, I should say. Uh, Nord Stream 1 gas line, uh, gas pipeline nominations, which is a technical term for how much uh, you expect as an operator to flow through, um, are, it, are happening. Uh, the flow is happening. Uh, gas operator spokesperson, gas pipeline, says it in the process of resuming flows. Flows resumption could take several hours. Um, there's a lot of other technical data in there, but cut a long story short, it's happening. Um, there were worries, of course, about A, whether it would happen, and B, how much the Russians allow to go through the pipeline. That's a very important point. I think before the maintenance of Nord Stream 1, we were looking at around about 40%. So again, a limited amount of... Uh, gas compared to the cap capacity uh, was going through the pipeline. The understanding is it's going to be somewhere in the region of 30%, but who knows really? And, and as, uh, as often been cited, Mr. Putin will be absolutely loving this game at the moment, having uh, Europe's economy and Europe's energy needs uh, dangling at the end of a thread, of which he has got a massive pair of scissors yeah. if he wants to cut I mean, it. The Europeans have spelt out their plan trying to get to a certain amount of storage capacity before winter. I'm sure Putin's game is trying to foil that very plan to level, keep the uncertainty level pretty high at this point. So uh, if we don't get to capacity levels, there's talk, obviously, that we may run out by February. So uh, clearly con concerns at this stage. Well, coming up on the show, German business software giant SAP lowers its guidance as the impact of the war in Ukraine takes a bite out of its second quarter operating profit. We're going to talk you through the results with SAP CEO Christian Klein. That is coming your way next. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. In the headlines today, the ECB is set for an historic hike, raising rates for the first time in 11 years. Amid speculation, the central bank could follow global peers and opt for a bigger 50 basis point increase. Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi is expected to resign today after a parliamentary play for unity backfires, likely throwing the country into renewed crisis and another election. Gas flows resumed through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline after the end of scheduled maintenance, with the head of Germany's energy regulator confirming operations at a reduced capacity. And German software giant SAP lowers its four-year profit guidance as the impact of the war in Ukraine weighs on operations. We'll talk through the results with the SAP CEO Christian Klein next. Right, 
Let's have a look. Uh, revenue over at Skanska, the construction group, um, 44.8 billion Swedish krona. Uh, adjusted for currency effects, increasing 18%. EPS 4.61 as opposed to 4.68 previously. Operating cash flow has gone to negative 0.5 billion Swedish krona, um, negative 2.4 as the previous figure. Return on equity, 17.7% as opposed to 26.7%. Let, let's get to uh, Anders Danielsson on this one, CEO of Skanska straight away. Anders, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Um, just talk us through the numbers. Are we seeing some margin issues here? Uh, no, it's a quarter with good profitability and a very strong financial position. Uh, on the construction side, we're, we're at 3.4%. Uh, the same on the rolling 12 months basis. Just shy of our target of 3.5%. And in the project development, we are above our target of 10% return on cap capital employed. And also the same for the operating margin. So it's a good quarter in that sense. Okay, good to, uh, on that sense, and I, I take on board everything you've just said, but you said above 10.9% uh, on the return on capital employed in project development. Previous figure was 12.4. Return on equity was 17.7. Previous figure, 26.7. Why the negative trajectory then? Uh, it's, uh, it, it, you should look at this over time. Uh, if you compare to last year, we, we had a re really strong uh, divestment. So uh, the, the, we have... Uh, uh, a bit uh, lower volume uh, when it comes to divestment, but uh, on the divestment that we have made, both in residential development and uh, commercial development, has been on a good level. So the market is definitely there and the, the investors are in interested and attractive about our, our uh, portfolio and our, uh, uh, our uh, projects, definitely. Can I ask you about operating cash flow from operations? Uh, that's amounted to about 500 million Swedish krona. Can you just give us a sense of the direction on uh, that metric from here? Yeah, our financial position is uh, very strong. We have a net cash position of 11 billion Swedish crowns. Uh, so we have uh, a lot of headrooms to invest more in product development. And that's our ambition going forward. The market is a bit slower now, but uh, in the long term, we, our ambition is to increase our investments. When it comes to residential development, I've just picked up a line from uh, the report card saying market activity has slowed as a consequence of interest rate hikes and general economic uncertainty. We could uh, not be done yet when it comes to the interest rate hikes. And of course, it's ECB day today as we set up for the first move. What impact are you anticipating from here if interest rates continue to rise and particularly with fairly large scale increases? Yeah, the residential development market is uh, slower. Uh, we have the same outlook, though, uh, as we had the last quarter. So we expect a slower market when it comes to residential development for the coming uh, four quarters. Uh, it will take some time before uh, the seller and the buyer meet each other again. The expectations uh, from the sellers are, are a bit too high still. So uh, we, we will have to... Uh, wait and, until that uh, balance, have a balance. Having said that, uh, we still sell apartments uh, and we still have a profitability, good profitability in our operations for the residential development, despite the fact that we have seen uh, cost escalation, interest rates goes up. But since we have a very financial strong position, we are not reliant uh, on uh, the credit market, and that's a very good position to be. We can take opportunity that arise in the, in the future here.
Um, your website is great for looking at what your projects are in different parts of the world. So, you know, four models for that. And I'm just looking at your projects in the United States, actually, as well, which is such a key market for you. Uh, a more aggressive Federal Reserve than the ECB. What's that doing to uh, the appetite for projects in the United States? Is it dousing demand at all? Or actually, I mean, again, you know, all over the place, you've got some extraordinary projects from, I don't know, Kentucky to Houston to Washington, D.C. Just give us a a broad brush of what you see in the States, Anders. Yeah, we we are uh, positive about uh, about the U.S. and uh, it's a substantial part of our operation, more slightly more than 40 percent of the revenue. So we can see that the non-residential market, non-residential construction i.e. Uh, hospitals and so on, commercial building. That is a stable market uh, going forward. That's our outlook. On the infrastructure side, we expect a strong market, continue strong market. We can see that the federal money com- coming out in the system, which means that the different states, they're starting to launch projects out in the market. So, but the pipeline is good and uh, we expect it to be that. And as a, a lot of CEOs are in a huge forecasting role at the moment, and one of the other variables here is the energy crisis in Europe. A lot of member countries in Europe have been asked to draw up plans around consumption cutbacks. Do you think there could be implications for you if that is the ultimate outcome? Uh, yes, uh, and that's why we expect somewhat uh, stable or slower market in Europe uh, when it comes to non-residential and also residential. We can uh, see some product might be postponed due to the cost escalation and also uh, the the energy crisis. Uh, but uh, we we are confident. We're in a good position. We have a strong order backlog, so we're not in a, It's not urgent to us to win new work, so we can more, work more long term and continue to be selective. It's just unraveling this a little bit further. Is it uh, likely to, to be an impact where you see uh, certain products that you can't get a hold of because uh, the supply side just starts to tighten again if there are constrictions on a certain amount of gas product? Is it uh, in terms of what you can do yourself as an overall business? And just exactly how, how could this play out if we're talking about consumption cutbacks? Uh, what we have seen during the pandemic, but also now uh, when the war broke out in Ukraine, uh, is the supply chain disruptions. We have seen uh, shortages, we have seen cost escalation, but so far we, the organization has done a tremendous work in handling this in a very good way. We have been able to keep up the margins and keep up the profitability in the, in the projects and also to make sure that we, the projects are up and running. So that uh, um, uh, I think that's a very, very strong uh, 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 achievement by the organization. Anders, thank you very much for joining us today and to talk us through the numbers. Anders Danielson with us, the CEO of Skanska. Also on the earnings front today, SAP has lowered its full-year guidance, now forecasting adjusted profit between 7.6 and 7.9 billion euros. The German software giant reported second quarter revenue growth of 13%. That was above expectations. Christian Klein, the CEO of SAP, joins us now. Christian, welcome back to the program. Let me ask you first up about the impact on the war in Ukraine. It seems to be a fairly large uh, accounting number in the results today. Just explain to us uh, what's still playing out when it comes to the exposures around the uh, geopolitics. Yeah, so thanks a lot. Uh, Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, first of all, I mean, Q2 has been a good quarter for SAP, despite the challenging macroeconomic and geopolitical environment 
our tech is more relevant. As you also just said, we also beat um, market expectations on the top line. And also, let me just outline three key numbers. Yeah. Cloud revenue is now our largest revenue stream. So the transformation works. It's up 34%. Second, our current cloud backlog is also up 34%. And last but not least, our flagship product, S4HANA Cloud, increased by 100%. Now, the pipeline is very robust because when you look at our tech and what our customers need in these days is actually they will continue their business transformation. They are looking for resilient supply chains and they also want to move to a sustainable operations. And this is what our tech does. On the bottom line, yes, uh, of course, the exit uh, of Russia costs us 350 million of profit. This is why we slightly adjusted also our operating profit outlook. But as well, what is also going into that, we are seeing, because of the strong cloud momentum, we are seeing that customers are shifting their investments from our software capital-intensive business to the OPEX-related cloud business. So that's what also then led to the adjusted operating profit guidance, Kevin. Christian, while we're talking about uh, altered forecasts here, can I ask you about the energy crisis situation in Germany? We were just talking uh, about this with Skanska, the impact if there are reductions, whether they're voluntary or mandatory in terms of business consumption. Is anyone immune if you talk about uh, your tech business and, and what you do with the cloud? Could you still be impacted by a reduc reduction in energy usage in Germany? So when it comes to our own cloud business and our data center, they are already sourced by Queen Energy today. So there will be no impact on the, Rus on the Russian gas and oil uh, situation. Of course, the German economy overall could be impacted. That really depends on the development now, what happens you know, coming from Russia. And uh, when you look at the overall macro environment, as I said, not only in Germany, we definitely see the challenges and it's really you know, hard to say how this will develop over the next quarters. What I can say is that the tech investments, especially on our side, our pipeline, is very robust also for the second half of the year. Christian, uh, I want to bring up uh, cloud valuations because this is one area of the market that has been particularly punished. I mean, the other area is fintech, but close behind has been cloud valuations. I noticed today uh, you've mentioned the buying back of 500 million euros worth of your own shares. Why not mm -hmm. deploy this through M&A and pick up some of these cheap cloud assets that have been trading on much larger premiums? Does that suggest you th still think the sector is overvalued? Yeah, good question, Kevin. Actually, something we are discussing, of course, in the board as well. So first of all, when you look at our organic growth, it's very strong. I mean, total revenue is up 12% in the midst of our transformation. We are not even yet done. You see a declining software business, but our cloud business is booming. So our organic growth doesn't require any you know, uh, further growth from M&A. But of course, when you look at our portfolio, we will continue to watch the market and we will do further divestments in areas where, where which is not core to SAP. And you will also see further acquisitions from SAP in the core to further fuel our growth. But again, it's not needed yeah, because we see so, so strong organic growth. And the share buyback is, of course, something we, we also reconfirmed our cash flow outlook. So cash is also over the year will be very strong. And that's why we said it's time now uh, for some capital returns.
Christian, um, I totally understand why you want to invest in the next generation of cloud services. Of course, you have to invest uh, in order to stay ahead of the pack. But just dig into a little bit more detail into the rationale and the reason why your operating margin, I would say quite worryingly, is falling quite aggressively as well. I know there's Belarus and Russia issues. I, I, we can park that aside. You've already talked about that a lot over the last few months. But it's the decrease in software licenses and software revenues that I have concerns about. Yeah, so Steve, as we always said, yeah, and we are in a transformation, Russia, of course, is an impact. On the other hand, when you have a decline in your legacy business, in your software business, which we are now overcompensating by a lot on the top line with the strong cloud momentum, you see mathematically also a hit on the profit in the first two years because you're changing upfront revenue to subscription revenue. But what we also reiterated today is actually our commitment that we will grow operating profit by double digits next year, which is then the year three of transformation. This is where then, you know, also the cloud business will pull back also on the bottom line. And this commitment holds true. And I hear you, Christian, and I'm not trying to pick holes, but are we saying here that, that then you're going to grow the operating profit, but the margin is on a trajectory because as ever with technology, when it becomes commoditized as well, your margins on that technology decline, hence your need for that next generation product as well. Uh, on, even on the margin side, you will also see, you know, also there an increase next year. When you look at our business, yeah, ERP, supply chain, HR, procurement, we are, have a very strong position. So we sell a lot of value. This is why we are very confident on prices. We also very confident on further increasing now our cloud, cloud cross margin. So what we are doing is very healthy business. This will continue now to increase in the next quarters to come. So overall, you will also see very good margin progression then in 2023. Christian, a larger, perhaps more holistic question as well is there is no doubt, as you and Karen have discussed many times and I've chipped in occasionally, that the digitization is moving one way, that the increase of cloud services we think is moving one way. But it costs money for companies to transform, even if the product, when it's cloud-based, ultimately is potentially cheaper, as we've just discussed as well. Is corporate Germany, is corporate Europe so concerned about so many very pertinent issues of which we've discussed on this show a lot already about interest rate hikes, about uh, energy costs as well going through the roof? Are these denting the appetite of the big corporates who you are speaking to, who are your customers, to make that transition more quickly because they've got clear and present dangers to their business model coming from other areas? Yeah, Steve, without any doubt, there is macroeconomic pressure. Yeah, but you also have to see when it comes to our portfolio, it's not only about the move to the cloud, like with others. What we are doing with our software is to help on process automation, is to help to gain further synergies to offset margin pressure. So yes, there is an investment, but there is also an ROI, which is very strong. When you see, when I talk to CEOs these days, not so many actually see demand challenges yet. They see supply chain challenges. And again, our tech comes into play to build this resilient supply chain. So there is a great ROI there. And when it comes to sustainability, without any doubt, this has to continue. And also there, our software is key. So this is why I'm so confident. And when I'm looking at our pipeline, it's very robust. And this is why we also reconfirmed our revenue outlook for this year. And we see strong momentum also for the years ahead.
Christian, I want to bring up how national security has found its way to the cloud as we talk about data protection. I know that you had a partnership from earlier this year to develop a sovereign cloud. Uh, rivals or Oracle, for instance, in recent weeks also going down this pathway of this sovereign cloud. And given all the geopolitics and concerns around data security at this point at a sovereign level, how big a growing area is this as we talk about very, various countries eager to secure uh, information that they do not want passed across borders? Yeah, that's indeed a fast-growing business, Carolyn. Especially in these times of geopolitical tensions, there will be higher demand for sovereign clouds. We already have one for some years in the US. We have it in Australia. We have it in the UK. We are doing it together with Microsoft now in, in Germany to also reach the very high requirements here in this country. And we will continue to do so also in other countries. For us, it's very important that this is also you know high growth, but also high profitable business. And this is what we are working on to also have a high scaling business, especially in the public sector. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.